This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 544, a conversation with Steve Englehart. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 544. It's our conversation with Steve Englehart. I am your host, Adam Chapman, and welcome to the show. Uh, today I got to sit down with uh, the legendary Steve Englehart to talk about his career in comics. And to be honest, there's a lot more we could have talked about that we didn't get a chance to talk about. And uh, hopefully we'll be having him on the show for uh, another appearance sometime in the near future. Uh, I did want to thank uh, contributors from the Marvel Masterworks Forum who contributed questions uh, for Steve. Um, in particular, I want to thank DJ Way um, and also apologize to him as I didn't get to integrate as many of his questions as I would have liked from him, but I uh, definitely tried to get some of his questions in there uh, from uh, a variety of different topics. I also want to thank uh, Green Meerkat, uh, Muldoon, uh, Pepe Oliart, um, as well as, I think there was someone else on my list, Dave Tone, the Mousehold Cat, uh, as well as uh, Todd Tam and Clark, and uh, let's see, Mr. Articulate. So thank you for submitting questions for the show, and I did try to ask Steve as much as possible uh, and integrate that into the episode. Uh, this is a great one. I think you're really going to enjoy this. You can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Steve, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for uh, taking us up on our invitation and uh, gracing us uh, with your presence today. We're really excited to uh, to chat with you. And uh, um, actually, I want to go back and kind of find out what was it that kind of brought you into comic books to begin with. Basically, comic book art. I, I was a big fan of comic book art all the time I was growing up and, and in fact, wanted to get into comics as an artist. Um and through a series of circumstances ended up writing something and turned out I liked doing it and Marvel liked what I was doing and so I ended up being a writer. What was it about writing that, that ended up kind of attracting you or that that really gave you that writing bug? Because, you know, for some people it's just, it's a, it's a character, it's a story that kind of unleashes that part of them. What was that for you? I think just the storytelling. I mean, the first thing I did was actually just dialoguing a little six-page monster story that uh, had already been drawn. Uh, Gary Friedrich was supposed to write it, but he didn't feel like it, so they handed it to me. Um, so there was nothing particularly special about this story, but I just and I enjoyed the process of telling it, of writing, you know, writing dialogue and so forth for it. Um, my father was a newspaper reporter, so I must have had those genes in there somewhere. But uh, I really, up until that point, I had been thinking I was on my track to being an artist. Hmm. Now, once you do that, you know, that dialoguing, what what comes easier to you? Is it plots or is it scripting? Um. Well, <clears throat> both. I mean, I don't. I don't know that I can distinguish. I like plotting. I like sort of taking ideas and fitting them together in the most pleasing way that I can think of. And then once the story is ready to be dialogued, I like writing the characters. I like getting inside each individual character and, and you know, talking with their voice and, and thinking with their head. So uh, they're just two parts of the same process, which I like both of. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that Gary Friedrich wasn't able to, to do it and uh, that you kind of stepped in. How, how, how did you get to that point where you were there to be the one to step in? Well, okay, this, this goes back to the circumstances. Um, 
in those days, in order to work in comics, you basically, the first step was move to New York. Uh, you had to physically be there because it was before there was the Internet or FedEx or any of that sort of thing. And so you would go into the offices and get stuff and, and go into the offices and deliver stuff. And so most everybody who worked in comics lived in New York. And so you got to know everybody who worked in comics, which was a very cool thing. Um, and one of the people, obviously, was Gary Friedrich. And one day, a stewardess was murdered in the apartment above his. And his wife said, I don't feel comfortable here. Let's go back out to Missouri, where you're from. And so he was on staff at Marvel. And he called me up because he knew me. And he said, you know, I'm going to Missouri for six weeks. Do you want to, like, just fill in for me? And I said, sure. I mentioned this to Roy Thomas recently, who said... <laughs> wanted to know exactly why he wasn't involved in this process since he was the editor but uh, <laughs> I don't I don't actually know um, so um, Gary went to Missouri and I took the job for six weeks and at the end of the six weeks Gary didn't want to come back from Missouri and in fact did not want to write that six-page monster story he apparently was kicking back pretty good out there so um, you know I stayed on the job I was there and uh, you know when the script came back they said well, somebody's got to write it, and, it, it, you know, it's a six-page monster story, so it's not likely to be any big gun. So how about you, the guy sitting over there at the bottom of the totem pole? You want to write this thing? And I'm like, sure, you know? <laughs> and that's what happened. Now, not long after that, I guess you also get Amazing Adventures writing the Beast story. How did that kind of come about? And it's kind of interesting that why did they want Beast to be having his own kind of ongoing story like the X-Men weren't really around or a thing so how did you kind of take the reins on that? Well that's the deal the X-Men had, had been a failed book people who aren't aware of that history are always astounded by that but um, the X-Men had gone under and but those characters still existed nobody ever dies of course in comics and, and Roy had the idea of um they were doing well with monster books at that time. They had Werewolf by Night, and they had Dracula, and, and so forth. And and so Roy thought, well, if we take the Beast and make him look, you know, more like a werewolf, uh, then maybe we can sell him by himself. And so uh, Jerry Conway wrote the first issue that set it all up, and then they handed it off to the low man on the totem pole. Um, you, there was a period in there in between the six-page monster story and the beast where i wrote a couple romance stories and a couple westerns i mean marvel in those days published that kind of book and they would start writers you would sort of learn your trade not on the superhero books so getting the beast was you know a vote of confidence a step up all that kind of thing even if it was uh you know with a failed character that they were taking a chance on and so forth and then um the book the series did just last six issues before it went under again, but they had liked what I had done, so, you know, that didn't count against me. I have two questions that kind of come out of that. First is, writing, you know, a romance book at that point, what was that kind of like as, a, as an exercise? I mean, you're, you're still relatively new to actually writing comics, and now you're writing something that's markedly different from the typical superhero fare. So what was that like, kind of writing something like that at that time? Well, that's where I go back to finding out that I actually liked writing. I mean, I, I certainly had thought entirely of being of working in superheroes. You know, I, I was a big Marvel fan coming up. I mean, so uh, I wasn't 
jonesing to write romance stories or westerns or monster stories, but that's what they were giving me, and I found, you know, yeah, you know, I can have fun writing this sort of thing. I wrote, you know, I wrote the typical sort of Marvel romance stories, um, two girls and a guy, or, or, you know, two guys and a girl, or whatever, you know, whatever it was, um, but, you know, it's like, okay, so I'm going to write a good romance story was the way I looked at it, you know. <laughs> and then I, I, this actually came from a listener, but it, it prompted from something you just said. Um, he said that for some time after the last Roy Thomas issues of the original X-Men, it seemed like you were the only one to have them and some of their villains popping up in your various series. Did you try pitching an X-Men revival before Len Wein did, and what would, the, what would have been the approach? No, I didn't. Um, I just, you know, I was... I went from getting the beast um a year later i i had you know i had written the beast i also by that time picked up the avengers the defenders um doc savage luke cage the hulk um you know you you move uh, as long as you can do more work they'll give it to you um so i was by that you know i sort of went once I got to the Beast, I kind of went straight into the superhero world um, and wasn't in the process of pitching anything. I was, I mean, you know, they gave me the Avengers and the Defenders and Luke Cage and the Hulk. I mean, I was like, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, I'm good with that. Um, but the X-Men, uh, if you were the Fantastic Four writer, you were in charge of Doctor Doom and the Mole Man. And if you were somebody writing something else and you wanted to use the Mole Man, you went to the Fantastic Four writer and asked him if that would be okay. And they always said yes. I mean, people, that it was all very collegial. But one of my point is, uh, books that were being published had not only the heroes, but the villains as part of their gestalt. But books that weren't being published, you know, they were just kind of there for anybody to use. And as the new guy, uh, I mean, I'm writing the Avengers. I'm in charge of all the Avengers villains. I'm writing the Defenders. I'm in charge of whoever might be a Defenders villain. But nobody was in charge of the X-Men. So I thought, well, you know, I like them, and I can use them to flesh out, you know, other stuff that I'm doing. So I did. And it is true. There was a period there before the new X-Men came along when I think almost all of their appearances were by me. <laughs> uh, not all of them, but um, I was, uh, so that I was never, you know, I never had an X-Men series, but other than the Beast, but I mean, I didn't have an X-Men series, uh, but I used them in all my other series just because they made for a more interesting world, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it brings up another listener question, which is uh, when you were writing Beast and Amazing Adventures, if the book hadn't ended, would you have you know continued on with it? I mean, that's conjecture, but would you have brought in more X-Men characters at that point? Probably. Yeah, no, I was, I was certainly, I was married to the Beast. I mean, and, and he remained, you know, he remains a, a, somebody that I, you know, that I'm real interested in because he was my first superhero. Well, that's why I put him in the Avengers later when I had a chance to revamp the Avengers. I brought the Beast over just because he still wasn't being used. There still wasn't an X-Men book at that point in time. And I find it odd, or not odd, but, but you know, it's interesting that some people consider him more of an Avenger than they do of an X-Men um, now. Um, so 
so I would have stayed with the Beast as long as the Beast was there to be published. And and I was, you know, I was beginning to really dig into him after six issues. I was getting to learn more about how to write and and you know how far I could go and and opening up that world. And I had used the Angel in, in there, I think, and and Professor X had shown up in that series. I mean, I I think the connection to the X-Men would have stayed, the original X-Men would have stayed there. Um, but, you know, I mean, once it got canceled, I actually it got canceled without my finishing the story I was doing, so I ended that up in the Hulk later on. Hmm. Um, but, you know, when you're not writing a book, you're not, you're thinking about the other books that you are writing, so... Um, the same listener had a, uh, it's a long question, so I'll kind of condense it, but his point was that when you were writing Avengers, because, you know, the big three had other books, um, and couldn't necessarily have the same level of, uh, character developments in Avengers, that it felt like Vision kind of became your point of view character, and that when you got him married and kind of, that story kind of ended and, it, and you immediately brought in the Beast, and he was kind of saying, were, were you intending to kind of use Beast as your new point of view character uh, now that Vision had kind of had his story evolve to the point where you could kind of marry him off? Possibly. I, I don't think of any of those guys as my point of view character, but that's not the worst observation <laughs> in the world. Um, uh it is true that I really liked the Vision and the Witch, um, and once I brought Mantis in, you know, the threesome uh, made for interesting stories, and so I got, you know, deeper into that, into those three. Um, and, of course, I was writing Captain America at the same time. Forgot to mention him before. There were so many. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, you know, he was able, to, I was able to do him. Uh, as far as Iron Man and Thor goes, I mean, I tried to give them, um, you know, the right amount of time. Tried to make them something and not just figureheads, you know. Um, but, I mean, the... the, the plot line, I think, probably did sort of revolve around Vision Witch and Mantis for a good part of that time. And then, you know, I mean, I like the Beast a lot, and I brought him in, but I also brought in Moondragon, who, you know, I wanted to see what I could do with her, Hellcat. I mean, um, I think probably Hellcat, more than the Beast, was um, kind of a driving force in, or, you know, a, a linchpin for that second era of mm-hmm. Avengers. Uh, so I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would agree with the idea of point of view character at any time. Uh, but, you know, th- there were certainly ones who lent themselves more to being able to tell stories um, about than others. Okay. Um, another listener mentioned that uh, in the Marvel Masterworks Avengers Volume 15 introduction, you wrote about how your reading old genres of comics, including romance and western titles, led to your inclusion of Patsy Walker, what, sorry, Patsy Walker and the Avengers trip to the Old West. Could you expand further? Well, um, I mean, again, I've been a fan of Marvel. Uh, I've been a fan of everything. I liked Marvel best, but in those days, you know, there was magnus robot fighter from gold key there was the charlton books there you know there were the thunder books for a while um there were a lot of books and most of them cost a dime or 12 cents or whatever so it wasn't you know even though you see those things where it says you know 
you could buy a car for a dollar and a quarter in 1970 or what, <laughs> you know. Um, still, there was plenty of money to, you know, to go buy books. And so, you know, I collected everything. I mean, I collected Marvel and DC and Gold Key and Charlton and all that. But in terms of Marvel, I was also collecting their monster books and their romance books. I liked Patsy and Hetty, um, you know, as, as a book. Um, had good soap opera going on. DC had soap operas and their romance, and I bought them. I mean, you know, it was all, I just was immersed in all facets of comic books before I came, you know, before I got my chance to write comic books. And, and if my interests lay toward Marvel and toward superheroes, I still had all that stuff in my brain. So um, over time, um, I thought, you know, because Patsy Walker had shown up in the Fantastic Four Annual. When Reed and Sue got married, I think it was FF Annual number four, uh, they come out of the ceremony out onto the street, and there's crowds of New Yorkers, you know, cheering them on. And, and among them, Stan had thrown in Patsy and Hetty. Um, and, you know, it was kind of fun, you know. It was kind of cool. Um, just a, a little nod there. But she'd entered the Marvel Universe. So then I used her in The Beast, um, Patsy Walker, um, moved, you know, again, she was a character that I could make a story out of that wasn't being used by somebody else. Um, that's pretty much why she came into The Beast. And again, her story with The Beast was cut off, which, in, and I did then finish it off in The Hulk. But, you know, she remains next to The Beast in terms of my earliest um, um, interesting characters to my mind. So um, later um, I brought her in as the Hellcat. Um, and then the Western end of things, when I was a kid, there were, you know, there were a lot of Western TV shows. When I was growing up, you know, there were a lot of them. And, and um, over time, there were fewer and fewer. And by the time, I mean, like now, there's like nothing. Um, there's the occasional Godless on Netflix or the occasional uh, movie where people kind of want to recreate that. But the, but the public interest in Westerns has just completely fallen off the table compared to what it was when I was a kid. And my theory that I did talk about in the Masterworks was <clears throat> that... Sad to say, but when I was a kid, it was possible that, like, your grandfather could have been, or, or maybe a great-grandfather, but, I mean, sort of within living memory, there were cowboys. You know, the mm. Old West was not as far in the past as it is now. And I think everybody kind of, you know, it was part of the American thing to, you know, the, the lone cowboy on the frontier, blah, blah, blah. But as, we, as it became... As, you know, kind of like the Civil War, say, or the Revolutionary War. I mean, as it moved to the point where it's only historical and no longer sort of, you know, something where you might run into somebody who had had firsthand knowledge of it, then it went away. And I and I just sort of thought right there in the 70s that, that Marvel had basically stopped publishing um, Western books. They had had them, you know, earlier, but pretty much everybody except Kid Colt, I think, I could be wrong. No, the Rawhide Kid was still around. There were a couple, I guess, but there used to be a lot more of them, uh, Marvel Westerns and everybody else's Westerns. So I just thought, well, that era is going away, and I 
you know, and I liked that era, so I will do something with that era while well, I got the chance. And that led me to the whole time travel thing um, where they go back to the Old West. Hmm. Um, had you, uh, speaking about Patsy Walker first, had you always thought about giving her powers when you brought, first brought her in? No. When she appeared in The Beast, um, I do a thing a lot <clears throat> where... Um, I'll be writing a story and I'll see some aspect of something and I go, well, that's pretty cool. I don't know what where that would go, but that's a cool aspect. So let's just throw that in with the concept, with the knowledge that, you know, in a couple of months, I'm going to have to like do something about that. I'm going to have to figure out exactly what that was all about. But at the moment, it just intrigues me. So let's just set it up now. And um, so when she came in, she was there. Um, again, to, to give me more characters to work with. and But I, I did this thing where she does something for the Beast, and then she says, because I did this for you, you're going to have to do something for me. And then the, that run ended. And even when I tied it up in the Hulk, I never said what it was she wanted him to do. And so when I did bring him into the bring them both into the Avengers, she goes to him and she says, I want superpowers. I want to be, you know, I want to do that. And and so we went from there. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I will just jump sideways. Uh, you may be wanting to get here. But, like, at the end of my Captain America run, I came up with this thing about, is the Falcon really Sam Wilson or is he somebody else? And then I handed that off to the next writer. I was trying to set up something that would be interesting for him to write, but it turned out that he couldn't meet his deadlines, and so they, the Marvel editorial people just kind of wrapped the whole thing up as quickly as they could, and then Jack Kirby took over and life went on. And ever since then, people ask me, well, was Sam Wilson Sam Wilson, or was he the other guy? <laughs> and I'm like, I have no idea, because <laughs> I never, you know, I never wrote that. And, and I, so I, that's the thing. I would throw, I would throw out stuff with the idea of picking it up later. And if I didn't pick it up, then I never bothered to think about it. Right. So, and hmm. um, well, this might be kind of that kind of thing then, but, uh, what did you have in mind for the two gun kid being brought into the current day? Were you thinking of a series or a Hawkeye two gun, two gun series or. Yeah. All of that. I didn't have anything specific, but what I, what I liked about it was the two gun kid, was a good character. I mean, you know, among the many Marvel characters, he was the most superheroic because he had a secret identity, such as it was. Um, there actually had been others earlier on, the Black Rider um, um, and the Ghost Rider, I think, both had secret identities. But Tugan, but they weren't being published so much, and Two-Gun Kid was. Anyway, I just thought, you know, if you're like the king of the prairie, I mean, you're you're doing your superhero thing out there on the frontier and you're winning against these and they started to throw Stan started to throw in sort of kind of like Wild Wild West the old TV series that's kind of like super villains except done steampunk basically is what we'd call them now um, uh, you know he, he'd had a little he'd gone up against a guy in an iron suit and he'd gone up against a hypnotist and I mean things that a cowboy could do but 
so it was kind of superheroic like whatever but anyway he was good at it so then i thought what if that guy was suddenly dropped into 1975 and and instead of guys with six guns he was facing dr doom you know i mean what if what if being a fast draw um and an accurate guy and all that I mean, what are you supposed to do against Kang the Conqueror or whatever against that? And that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see this brave guy suddenly thrust a hundred years into the future, and 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 having and and you know, I figured he would figure that out, and so possibly Hawkeye as a partner, whatever. Anyway, it was a, it was a thing where I brought him up there. I thought I'm going to do something with this, but it was not in my brain you know, that I was going to do it, like, immediately. Um, Marvel got it into its idea that I was about to start a new series, and and um, when I found out that that was their idea, and I was, you know, that was right when I was doing both the monthly Avengers and four times a year giant-sized Avengers, which was tied into the same storyline. So I was basically writing, you know, a book and a half a month um, just on the Avengers, and then I was writing other books too. So I was, you know, I was in no hurry to get to the two-gun kid thing, and by the time um, I might have done it, I'd left Marvel, so that never happened either. But the idea was... Uh, you know, I mean, if you were if you were sent a hundred years into the future, how would you cope with what you found there? You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned um, when you're talking about all the books you're writing at the same time, which is a crazy workload as well. For again, you're, you're still new into the industry, and suddenly you're writing everything. It seems like um, you also took over Captain America, and it was kind right. of close to cancellation at the time, and you made it quite successful. Is there anything that, looking back that you would have done differently, or wish you would have done differently at that point? Not really. I mean, I you know, I just sort of hit the ground running, and and. Um, you know, when I got hired, the only two editorial dicta were you have to turn it in on time every month and you have to make it sell. And if you can do that, you can keep doing it. And if you can't, we will fire you and get somebody who can because we don't have time to be rewriting everything. So it was like, boom, here's a book. Can you do it or not? And as it turned out, I sort of did have the ability to do it. So um I was, you know, I was just completely happy drawing on every resource that I had, you know, to try to do the best comics that I could. And as you say, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, for better or worse, I'm the guy who figured out that what Captain America needed was to be the symbol of American ideals. Uh, Up to that point, he had been the symbol of patriotic fervor for World War II. And when they brought him into the 60s, nobody really knew what to do with him. I mean, they, they, you know, people were embarrassed about a guy with a flag on his chest when there was so much anti-American and anti-Vietnam sentiment. Uh, He spent most of his time thinking about the glory days of World War II. He never really did much in the present. He got himself a partner and he got himself a girlfriend, but, you know, like nothing much happened that really made him interesting and the, and so you know they handed me that book and I said and they said you know it's about to get canceled unless you think of something and I thought well then I let's see if I can think of something and and the idea of making him the the you know the avatar of American ideals 
really struck home with people, even though there was a lot of anti-Vietnam War sentiment. People like, you know, people like American ideals. They may not like what America's doing at any particular time. And so um, that turned out to be, it got the book to jump up to number one, and it became sort of the touchstone ever after. I, I was at a convention last spring, um, and, uh, you know, we were talking about writing Captain America today, and it just, it sort of occurred to me that <laughs> it just, that, that storyline, I mean, that approach to Captain America, nobody's ever really found a better one, you know, 45 years later, oddly enough, as you know, the number is odd, but <clears throat> 45 years later, that's still what people want from Captain America. It's the one that's in the movies, you know. I mean, I didn't create Captain America, but I created the Captain America that's on screen. Um, uh, so, again, I just, it just, it didn't even take me, I mean, it didn't take me long. I sat down and what I did whenever I took over series anytime was I'd go back and read all the previous issues and kind of make notes about, well, here's a plot line that didn't get resolved or here's something that interests me that I could expand on or any, any of that kind of stuff. Cause I always, you know, I, I believed in the continuity of Marvel. I believed, you know, this is the same guy that Stan was writing back in the day. And, and, you know, I should try to take what's there and, and hopefully move it forward and, do things with it that haven't been done before, but definitely building off everything that's been there before. Um, and so, uh, you know, I just kind of looked at Captain America and said, you know, why isn't this working? And that was my answer. Hmm. Um, now, in and around, again, this extremely cluttered and busy period of uh, so many books, how did you, I mean, th- I understand, like, you, the low man on the totem pole, we have all these assignments coming up. Here you go, you can write do this. How did you end up actually launching the Defenders book, though? Well, Roy gave me after the Beast, um, you know, when they saw that the Beast, they were liking what I was doing with the Beast, then Roy gave me Captain America and the Defenders at the same time. Um, Captain America, because it sort of went toward the low man on the podium pole, everybody else had had a crack at it. Um, and the Defenders, you know, it had only existed with Roy writing it, so that was that was kind of another vote of confidence. And then a couple months later, he gave me the Avengers, which was like a really big time book. And so I thought, okay, well, he he's confident in what I'm doing here. You know, um, uh, the good thing about Captain America and the Defenders together was they were both drawn by Sal Buscema, and uh, you know, I. I'm a big fan of Sal Buscema's. He's he is a great comic book artist, um, and I quickly learned that there was nothing I could come up with story wise that he couldn't draw. You know, and that's not always true. There are some people who have trouble drawing horses, or you know, can't imagine a good looking futuristic citadel or that kind of stuff. But Sal could do all that stuff, and so anything that I wanted to tell a story about, Sal could could do it for me and and because of that i i never had to um sort of censor myself or say well can't put horses in this story because my artist can't draw it or whatever um so i'm you know i was very fortunate to get to work with a guy that versatile right off the bat um and then you know moved on from there but that was another definitely a um 
an important part of whatever it is that I turned out to be as a writer. What was it like working on the Marvel premiere book? Which one was that? Was that Doctor Strange? Uh, Doctor Strange first, and then I guess you created Shang-Chi as well. Well, Shang-Chi was Marvel Special Edition, which was the stupidest uh. name ever. Um, <laughs> uh, well, they, you know, Marvel had those books, um, sort of generic title books that they could start new series in and see. You know, it was, it was fishing. It was like, we'll put this out there and see if people want to buy this sort of thing. Um, Doctor Strange and Shang-Chi then went on and, you know, people did want to buy them, so they went on into their own books. Um, but it was just another way of... of, of starting stuff out. Shang-Chi was starting from ground zero, obviously. Um, Jim Starlin and I co-created the character. Um, Doctor Strange had was a failed book, and then it, they brought it back, and, and uh, Stan and Barry Smith had done the first issue of that, and then it was handed off to um, Gardner Fox, and I don't remember if Frank Brunner took it over immediately or not. I don't think he did. But pretty soon it was Gardner and Frank. And Frank, um, you know, was having more ideas than Gardner was able to work with. It was kind of what I just said about me and Sal, only in reverse and not and not as well matched. I mean, Frank wanted to do more, more cosmic magical stories, and Gardner was not, that was not Gardner's forte. So um, eventually, I don't know if they... I really don't know, or maybe I did at one point, but I don't know now whether Gardner was asked to leave the book or whether he decided to leave the book or whatever. But all of a sudden there was no writer for that book, and Frank asked for me because uh, he thought maybe I could do what he wanted to do himself. And as it turned out, we could. I mean, um, Frank and I sort of co-plotted everything thereafter and as long as he was on the book. Um and then eventually he left, and Gene Colan came on. Um, so, you know, we sort of completely ramped up Doctor Strange, but we didn't, um, you know, he wasn't, he was, obviously had existed for a long time, going all the way back to Ditko. Uh, but it was a new era, certainly. Coming on to Doctor Strange, what was like? What was your favorite version of the character up until that point? Was it the original Lee Ditko version? Was it um, t- you know Thomas uh, Colin and Palmer, or was it p- perhaps something else? I think I'd have to say the Ditko version. I mean, Ditko was you know Ditko's Ditko, and and that stuff was so unique. Even though it was started out, I mean, it never got past half a book. Um, he always was sharing it with the Hulk or. or or no, not the Hulk, I mean, Nick Fury, mm-hmm. uh, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., or the Torch and the thing. So, I mean, it was always half a book under Ditko, but Ditko was perfectly set up to do magical stuff, to draw magical stuff, you know, to plot magical stuff. Um, I'm sure that's another book that, that um, was mostly driven by the artist rather than Stan. Um, and it just, you know, that's still unique. I mean, I think to this day... I can't actually say, since I haven't been following it for the last 10 years, but certainly up until the mid-2000s, anybody who wanted to draw Doctor Strange was going to make it look like Ditko, you know, was going to get those weird dimensional things that Ditko did into his book somehow. So, you know, you can take that and you can make it much more cosmic and you can do it with Frank Brunner's 
panache, uh, et cetera. But um, uh, I certainly, I mean, you know, who's what's not to love about Roy Thomas and, and Tom Palmer and Gene Colan, uh, but, you know, it was always Ditko for me. Um because it just was so different. I mean, it's like it's just a different vibe. I think the the Roy Thomas stuff, you know, was more mainstream, more mainstream, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you first started writing uh, uh, the Doctor Strange story Marvel premiere, were you given any guidance on how to conclude the storyline that had been going on at that point? Because you were kind of it was in the middle of an epic, uh, the Shumagorath saga, and then you come on. Were, was there any kind of guidance on where to go, or you just kind of said, "Do what you want to do"? Yeah, that was it. I mean, we were always told, do what you want to do, so long as it sells and it hits the deadlines, you know? I mean, there was no, um, uh, I wouldn't want to say never, but it's really hard for me to think of any time when there was editorial direction. I mean, the editorial direction was just be good and sell the book, you know? So, no, if I took over Doctor Strange, then it was up to me, and, you know, again, I was working with Frank, um, to come up with it. And I know uh, Shumagoroth under Gardner Fox was going to turn out to be some sort of sort of generic monster, if I may say, you know, kind of a uh, nothing too amazing. But I really wanted to, you know, uh, I thought Doctor Strange had been the student of the Ancient One for quite a long time at that point, and I thought, why doesn't, you know, I wanted to move him up to Sorcerer Supreme. Um, I thought it would be interesting to have the Ancient One become one with the universe. I mean, all that stuff was in my brain, and Frank had, again, you know, Frank always had ideas, and, and we I took them seriously and incorporated them wherever I could, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, um, when I say I on that book, it's quite it's usually we in some form or another but uh no i just you know i really wanted to amp it up and so and so um shumagorov turned out to be you know what he turned out to be and not just sort of a generic um character and then as soon as you know strange became the sorcerer supreme and the ancient one disappeared i mean we just sort of kept making it bigger and bigger after that you know it's interesting you say that because so one of the uh, observations and questions from a listener who uh, legitimately had pages and pages of Doctor Strange questions. So I'm going to boil this down to a couple for him. But um, he, even, he even said that even though you had Strange take up the mantle of Sorcerer Supreme, you also seemed intent on making him more human and even earthier. For example, there seemed like a subtle sexual tension between Strange and the Gypsy Queen. And later on in the tale, he takes time off from his quest to send a message to his beloved Clea. Was the dichotomy between Strange's Trans, ah, transcendent and enlightened state in his humanity is something you intended to explore. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, every every character that I do, I want to get inside their heads. I'm I'm really much more interested in the guy inside the suit rather than the suit and its powers and so forth. As you know, if I may say in a shorthand version. Um, so it really doesn't matter whether it's Doctor Strange or Batman or Captain America or the Silver Surfer. Or, you know, I'm just trying to get inside that particular person's head because I I don't you know. Each one of them is unique, or should be. Um, but in, in terms of Strange's humanity, yeah, I wanted to explore that because it's one thing, you know, I mean, okay, the guy just said it. I mean, he's transcendent. He wanders through dimensions and all that. And yet, once upon a time, 
he was a guy who hurt his hands and, and went to Tibet and so forth. So, and, and, you know, Clea had been his girlfriend, quote unquote, or his love interest or whatever she was for quite a long time already, but it had not progressed past that part. And I wanted to see more of the, the earthy, shall we say, um, uh, you know, I didn't think he was a plaster saint. I mean, he and he wasn't so, you know, far out into the cosmos that he didn't um, have a human side anymore. So that's, um, yeah. That, but it's always, you know, all my books are about the guy and the situation that he finds himself in by being the superhero. Did you do any kind of meditation or mystical practice? This is a listener yeah. question. Yeah, when I, you know, when I took over that book, I had written Strange in the Defenders, um, and he was the magician in the group, but it was a group book, and, and they fought teams, and they did this, that, and the other thing. I mean, so his his magical side was, you know, straightforward, but it didn't get very deep. And when I took over this thing and said to myself, I want this guy to be the Sorcerer Supreme, I thought, I better learn something here, because I don't know what it what it, what it entails to be the Sorcerer Supreme. And I could just make it up and say, you know, yes, and I studied the book of Hogoth, and, you know, but, but I thought, well, uh, what the heck, I might as well study um, some of this stuff. So, I, you know, I, I read up on astrology and tarot and Kabbalah and, you know, meditation, all that stuff. Some of it then started to appear in the book. Um, Yeah, that and and I, you know, I didn't have to do that for Batman or Silver Surfer. I mean, pretty much anybody else. You you, there's nothing to study. But with magic, you know, there is. You know, there there are magical bookstores around and so forth. They sell magical books. So I thought, well, I should I should delve into this. When Frank ended up leaving the book, were you involved in deciding on who would take over? No, um, in those days. That really didn't happen. I mean, everything was assigned. Um, the idea, I mean, Frank could obviously ask for me to be the writer. Uh, I could have asked for somebody to be the artist when the time came. But in general, I was comfortable with the idea that, that um, pretty much any, I mean, you know, if, they, if they'd assigned somebody that I thought was really wrong for the book, I might have. I might well have said something, but Gene Colan had already done the book. Gene Colan was Gene Colan. Um, I had no problem with Gene Colan. Um, and, in fact, it's funny uh, because, I mean, funny in some sort of way, um, before he died, Gene was sort of traveling around the country um, doing appearances, uh, you know, and at the Cartoon Art Museum out here in the San Francisco, he came, and, and because I had worked with him, I was asked to come over and say something, you know. Um, and I was really amazed to discover that he and I worked together for the sum total of one year, and that was it. I somehow had thought that I had worked with him more than I did, um, just because he was, you know, he was such a big part of you know, my reading and everything along the way. Um, hmm. um, so, uh, you know, it was just one year's worth with Gene, but I was really glad to have done it. Um, and 
the difference was, you know, Frank and I had co-plotted the stuff. Gene had no interest at all in co-plotting or, you know, he just wanted to draw. So it, it, at that point, it became entirely me doing the plotting, which, you know, again, was fine. I'd had it, you know, I'd had my run with Frank and I had learned a bunch of magic and I was, you know, I was, um, I felt comfortable doing that. Um, and Frank's style is, is so fun to look at and you know it always has a glow to it and that's sort of I mean there's there's stuff about Brunner stuff which is unique right but there's also stuff about Colin stuff which is unique and they're different but they're both you know really cool and 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 Gene's stuff is is more photographic which then was interesting uh to do to do a magical book uh with a sharper a sharper image, not to be confused with a, <laughs> a store somewhere. Um, um, so I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I had two different eras there. I mean, I liked working with Frank. I liked working with Gene. The working conditions were different, but but I was really happy with what we came up with on both ends of it. Now, near the, I guess, the tail end of your this this Marvel period that you had, you also wrote a supervillain team-up. Right. What, what was it like writing that book? Uh, it, was, it was sort of hard to do. I mean, it was, you know, because they're villains, right? So they have to lose. Um, and you could you could end an issue with them winning, but then they'd have to lose the next time. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, you know, I liked Doctor Doom. I liked the Submariner. I was able to, you know, because the Submariner and Doctor Doom, I was able to throw the Fantastic Four in there for an issue, you know, whatever. Uh, but there wasn't an infinite number of things you could do uh, with the setup as it was. If I had somehow stayed on that book, you know, I think I would have had to break that set up open somehow. I mean, Dr. Doom might have taken over Europe or something, and, and you know, I mean, there, there would have had to have been forward motion somehow, but there wasn't. The only thing I did there was create the Shroud, which um, was kind of my homage to Batman and the Shadow and all those dark characters because I was a Marvel writer, so I was never going to be able to write the Batman or, you know, <laughs> the Shadow. Um, and then, it, as it turned out, everything changed and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the Shroud went on to become, you know, somebody in the Marvel Universe. Now, when you leave and you end up with writing for DC, um, one of the listeners noted that uh, you were the first Marvel guy to write the JLA. And mm. what, what was that What was that like working on the Justice League? And what was it like making that transition from one company to another? Um there's a number of things I could say there. I guess I really, you know, I had, as a comic book fan, I had admired the Justice League and the DC characters, or at least some of them. I mean, not as much as I like the Marvel characters, because the DC characters were always more about the suit rather than the people inside. They didn't, they didn't um, have much storyline beyond superheroic storyline. Um, but that's what I was brought over for. I mean, um, the deal there was when I left Marvel, I wasn't expecting to leave Marvel, and I was, you know, unhappy about the circumstances and so on and so forth. Um, and my wife had traveled in Europe before she had met me, and I thought, that sounds good. I'd like to do that. So we started making um, preparations to, you know, sell our house and go travel in Europe. And then I got a call from Jeanette Kahn, the new publisher, just taken over at D.C., and she said her 
you know, marching orders were to revamp the company because it had fallen on pretty hard times by that time. Uh, pretty much everybody who was a DC star, like Gil Kane or, or Neil Adams, you know, had gone over to Marvel by that time. And so she wanted me to come back the other direction, and specifically she wanted me to do the Justice League because I had done the Avengers and had written people rather than costumes, and she wanted that sort of approach to all the DC heroes, and the Justice League was the way to go about it. Um, I said I would do that. I said, yeah, I would do the Justice League. I'd be happy to do the Justice League, but I wanted to write Batman in and of himself because I love the Batman, and here was my one chance to write the Batman. Blah, blah, blah. So that's how I end up, but I can only do it for a year. I said, you know, I, I'll give you a year, and then I'm going to Europe. It's already set up. So that's why there was only a year's worth of material uh, for all that DC stuff. Um, the problem, as it turns out, is that DC is not Marvel, and, um, you know, over the years I've had my run-ins with Marvel, but I've had a lot more run-ins with DC. I, they're, they're very corporate. Um, they don't respect the individual creators, um, both of which were not aspects of working for Marvel. Um, so, you know, I mean, I figured out how to sell Batman to the masses, and then they made a movie by adapting those stories, and uh, they don't really, they don't like me to mention that fact. Um, and they wouldn't let me and Marshall and Terry do Batman again after the movie came out because, you know, the fact got mentioned. And, I mean, so there's a lot of petty nonsense involved in D.C. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the company. But in terms of writing the Justice League or in terms of writing the Batman or in terms of writing Green Lantern Corps, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I had a really good time doing that. I just wish um, I didn't have regrets for doing it as well, you know. Mm. That's unfortunate. I mean, yeah, you mentioned those those three books. I mean, obviously, those are uh, for a lot of fans are pretty important. Well, especially with the Batman, right? I mean, that's there's a reason why that's as you said helped uh, helped uh, DC sell it to the masses. I mean, the, those stories that you did with Marshall were absolutely fantastic. Well, you know, um, all of us, Marshall and Terry and I, all wanted to do the best Batman we could. We all loved the Batman, and we all wanted to really just do it the best we could. The interesting thing is that none of that was planned. I mean, um, I was originally doing it with uh, Walt Simonson and Al Milgram, neither of whom, you know, can be sneezed at. But uh, Julie Schwartz apparently decided that he wasn't liking the way that was coming out visually, and so he picked these two new guys named Rogers and Austin, to do the art, but um, I was under a deadline, as I say. I had to get everything done before I left the country, so I ended up uh, writing um, all of all the stuff that was eventually done by Marshall and Terry, script in advance, and so I did not know who was going to draw it. Um, I, you know, I wrote these scripts and I made them the best I could and as bulletproof as I could, but the odds were at DC at that time that it was going to be, you know, some some journeyman and some other journeyman doing the work on it. And uh, the thing I've learned over my career is that if you take the exact same scripts and they're like really well illustrated and in some parallel universe you take the exact same scripts and they're badly illustrated, people are just going to like 
you know, the well-illustrated version better, and they, and they can't really sort of sort out, well, it's the same script either way, or, you know, that the script did this, but the art didn't hold up, or any of that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, I was, I wrote what I wrote, and I was real happy with it, but I sort of figured that when it comes out, it's going to look pretty lame, and, you know, and... <laughs> things will go from there. So when I, so I was in Europe when I got a package from Julie Schwartz and saw those books for the first time. And I was just ecstatic because they did do such a fabulous job and we were all on the same page. And it was just, um, you know, total either serendipity or excellent editorial oversight from Julie Schwartz. But, um, you know, uh, that book really came together. The other book that I was doing during that time was, of course, The Justice League. Also, I did Mr. Miracle and a, and a few other things. But, I mean, I really was having a good time on The Justice League, and that stuff has not been reprinted <laughs> ever. But uh, they're finally going to do a, a, a Bronze Age Justice League omnibus coming out in March that's going to reprint that stuff for the first time. So if you happen to have a very strong back and 125 bucks, <laughs> you can... <laughs> You can see what that stuff was, because most people have not seen it now. I mean, it's been a long time since anybody saw that stuff other than, you know, buying the back issues. Um, and I'm real pleased that they're finally going to reprint that stuff. The, uh, the the Batman that you ended up doing with, with Marshall, I mean, obviously it's been reprinted many, many, many times. Um, what was it like to be able to go back and do Dark Detective 2? great. I mean, because we really loved the Batman, right? And we really didn't get to do the Batman. I mean, there we were being, I mean, uh, you know, there were a significant number of people who thought that that was a really good Batman, and yet DC never asked us to do Batman again, you know? In fact, um, I pitched a couple of things along the way, and they, you know, and they're like, no, no, you know, we don't really need that right now, but kind of thing. I mean, we got treated like, um, you know, like they wanted us to go away, which basically they did. Um, but then when the Christopher Nolan movie started coming out, the, uh, you know, Dan DiDio, who was now sort of taking the Jeanette Kahn thing of coming into a company and seeing what he could do to boost it up, um, you know, he thought, well, we need a lot of Batman material to sell once these movies come out. So he came to us and asked us to do it again, and we were, you know, we were thrilled. I mean, we were astounded, and we were thrilled. And the the cool thing about it is, um, you know, maybe someday my brain will start to fall apart, but it hasn't done it yet, and it hadn't done it then. And and so, uh, you know, I was just. I just was able to tap exactly right back into where I'd been. I didn't have to go, now, what did I write, or how did that work, or who was it? It's just like, no, I know who Batman and Silver and the Joker and all those people are, and I, and I will write them. So, um, you know, we, we did that. Um, we did the second run, Dark Detective, and then DC really didn't want to do a third one, but the sales were so good that they kind of had to. And then... You know, I wrote six scripts for the third run, and Marshall drew the first issue, penciled it, and then died. And so that was the end of that project. You know, mm -hmm. never got never got published. Although parts of it ended up on <laughs> in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, um, which again is part of working for DC. 
With Dark Detective, I mean, because you mentioned the with the first run that you did with Marshall, you wrote full scripts. You didn't know who was going to be illustrating it, and so there obviously there was no real collaboration in the because of the way it was constructed. This time, when you guys write Dark Detective Two, obviously you know each other and are able to actually work together and collaborate. So, what was it like, kind of collaborating on on Batman, kind of for the first time? Um, it was. It was. It was fun. Um, Marshall, you know, Marshall and Terry were living on the East Coast, uh, and I was living on the West Coast and, and all that the first time around. And then, as I say, I didn't know them anyway. When I came back from Europe, I got to know them. And even so, I was living in California. They were out there. During that interim, I mean, this this is a totally weird story, but um, during that interim, Marshall got married. He moved to Baltimore. Uh, he started doing video games. Um, he got divorced. He blah, blah, blah. And eventually, he moved to California, which I did not know. And, and uh, several years went by, apparently, from when he moved to California. And then one day, I was down in an unfamiliar city where my sister-in-law lived, and she was doing something, and we needed to get a Xerox of it, and we drove across town and went to a Xerox store, and I walked into the Xerox store, and there was Marshall Rogers, <laughs> which just blew my mind. Um, it turns out that he was living, you know, uh, about 40 miles south of where I live, and, and um, he didn't, you know, he didn't really know where I was, and I didn't know that he existed, and, and I mean, that he was on the West Coast existing. Um, so we got back together at that point, and then we were asked to do the dark detective thing, and then so we did that. Um, what the way we did it then was, or the second time around was, um, we, we would meet at a coffee shop or a, you know an espresso bar, whatever you want to call it, um, either up near where I lived or down where he lived or somewhere in between. Every week um, we'd get together, and you know, and I'd say, well, here's what I'm. You know, here's what I'm doing now, and he would show me the art that he was doing, and we would, you know, drink coffee and talk about it, and 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 that was a weekly thing for for you know throughout the creation of Dark Detective Two, and then once we got uh, the go ahead for Dark Detective Three, um, you know, we continued it, and you know, uh, so I was meeting with him every week, and he never looked. He smoked like a chimney. He had to go outside every 20 minutes and have a cigarette. But he didn't look sick. <laughs> he didn't look like there was a problem. So mm-hmm. it was a complete surprise to me when all of a sudden he had a heart attack and and, and died. Wow. But, but, yeah, we were, you know, we were working very closely together. Um, I guess was I mean was that would you call that one of your better collaborative relationships just because of the the nature of how you guys were able to collaborate on that project? Yeah, I mean I think um, I mean if I were trying to rate them, I'd go back to Frank Brunner. We mm. you know Brunner and I were totally on the same page. Sometimes Marshall and I were not on the same page, um, which isn't to say it wasn't a fun and you know and good collaboration. But um, you know if I were ranking them, I might put Brunner up above. Um, up above Marshall um, in terms of working together, but in both cases, I mean, you know, it was it was fun to do. 
A question from a, a listener was that uh, one of the most defining moments in your portrayal of the Joker is when he pushes his crony in front of a truck for speaking out of turn. Chilling and brutal, was there no pushback from the code or from DC? Nope, none of that. Um, uh, DC had not operated under the concept of do whatever you want to do so long as it sells and you hit your deadlines. But Jeanette had brought me over um, in order to do what I did. So that was part of the deal that I could do what I wanted to do. And, and, and Julie Schwartz, again, came from the era where the editor really ran stuff. But Julie was a cool guy. And um, I don't know whether it was his natural inclination or whether he had a talk with his new publisher who told him it would be his inclination. I really don't know. But I mean, Julie never, you know, I never got the impression that Julie really wanted to run things and he was pissed off that he couldn't or anything. I mean, he was, he was handed this guy and said, let him do what he wants to do. So that's what he did. Um, there was, uh, although I will say, uh, the, story where Hugo Strange gets beaten to death. I had originally had him beaten to death on camera and Julie suggested that it might be better off camera. And I didn't have a problem with that. And, and you know, so I mean, I was willing, I wasn't unwilling to listen to uh, what anybody had to say about that stuff. But by and large, there was, there was no editorial oversight from Julie. Um, I think he liked, again, I think he liked the early issues, and, and he was the one who decided the art needed to be changed. Um, and so he wasn't he wasn't giving me a hard time. Another question from a listener is that uh, you really seem to invest a lot of effort and thought in exploring the relationship between Bruce and Dick and deepening their personalities. Uh, Dick seemed more adult and independent than ever before, and you made him seem an equal partner in their partnership. How did you find the characterization at the time lacking, and what did you set out to do? Well, just in general, I wanted to do, I mean, Batman to me, I had loved, you know, that was part of what I loved as a kid, Batman, um, part of the art that I really loved. Um, but I had always thought, I couldn't understand, particularly at DC, you know, whenever, I mean, nobody had an actual girlfriend, and if they did, if, you know, Lois Lane for one, but I mean Vicki Vale, any of these people, when they would do something romantic the adult male hero would become sort of tongue-tied and embarrassed and you know, like a big overgrown boy and I thought, I don't think men are big overgrown boys, you know, I mean um, and, and Batman had come off the television series the camp stuff and you know um, uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams had had sort of darkened that, uh, darkened the comic book character, but he was still sort of a 70s businessman type of characterization, you know. It, 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 things got a little darker, but they didn't get really dark uh, under, the, under that, um, as nice as it all was. So I wanted to go back to the darkness of the of the whole thing, which is, you know, back in the early days, the Joker really was a homicidal maniac. Um, and so that's why he pushed that guy in front of a truck. I wanted to show that he was unpredictable and deadly. Um, and uh, that's why I gave Batman um, a sex life, which was, you know, the big breakthrough for, for making him accessible to the mass audience. Um, I wanted him to be a grown-up person, right? And and the best way to 
show that and show that he wasn't the guy from the camp TV series was to have him sleep with a woman, which you had to be circumspect with under the comics code, but blah, blah, blah. And so part of then, you know, part of that overall gestalt was if he's more of an adult than, than Dick, you know, he's not a boy either anymore. I mean, he wasn't by then. He'd already, you know, joined the Teen Titans and they, you know, they'd done this and that. So he was at least a teenager. He wasn't just an overgrown boy. So everything I was doing was an attempt to kind of um, make it more, uh, you know, adult, I guess, for want of a better word. You have the characters more adult, have the violent, have the darkness and the violence more, um, you know, just less comic booky, less campy. Um, so everything there was part and parcel of that. What uh, what prompted you to uh, include Boss Thorn um, as a as a as a villain? I mean, he was obviously very different from the kind of the typical Batman Rogues Gallery um, because he was you know more realistic, more gritty, corrupt. Um, what kind of made you think that he would be a, a good foil to use? Um, well, Gotham City. I mean, that's another uh, Gotham City is another character in the Batman books, right? And and um, it's one thing to say Gotham City is full of weirdos but Gotham City's still a city and Marshall you know again I didn't know this at the time but I made use of it later I mean Marshall really liked to draw cities I mean he would draw it's the most realistic Gotham City ever um, but my take on it was um, uh, you know they there had been storylines about you know well is it okay for the Batman to be running around as a vigilante and all that and I thought to myself well who's making those decisions you know it's not all Commissioner Gordon who gets to say something about this I mean Gordon works for the police which works for the city which you know so it led me back to um, wanting to get into the more realistic adult whatever. Um, look at how it would actually be to try to operate um, the way the Batman operates. And, I mean, again, it's a fantasy to me. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not supposed to be a documentary. Um, what Batman does <clears throat> is very difficult to do in real life, you know. And and the glamour of the whole thing and the crazy people and, the, and all that, I mean, it's, it is a, it, it's a, great comic book concept but at the same time yeah let's you know he does operate out of gotham city so let's personify gotham city one way or another and that was boss thorn when uh, this actually goes back to a question about the, the scripting that you did for the marshall rogers issues because obviously you had to get them done in advance um just how detailed was your your script like in terms of the panel descriptions like how much did you leave uh, Marshall to kind of come up with on his own, and how much of it was described in the script that you gave him? When I do scripts, I try to put in everything that I think is necessary and no more. Um, because I started out wanting to be an artist, because I worked as an artist for a while, I think I'm pretty good at, at visualizing how, you know, when, I'm, when I am visualizing a story, I can visualize it on the page, and I never expect the artist to draw exactly what I'm seeing, right? I mean, that's he's not me, and, and mm -hmm. there's no way that that's going to happen. But at least I know that it can be done, you know? I can see how I would draw it, so I know that I'm not asking for too much on that page, blah, blah, blah. Um, that said, 
working with artists, I want them to be able to do as much as they can do, so long as I get my story told. So I would put in there anything that was necessary, um, and and then let the rest of it be um, up to the artist. Um, I Marshall told me. Uh, that he liked working off full scripts. He liked having it all broken down for him, and then he could, you know, play with it thereafter. I personally preferred the Marvel style. I preferred to let the artist tell the story so that I would be writing dialogue off the actual art, and so I would be looking at exactly what you're going to look at. The problem with scripted advance is you don't know what you're going to be looking at. As I said, you don't know what the artist is going to do, and if you sort of rely on something and it doesn't get done, you know, then, then you're kind of messed up. But Marshall liked doing it that way. Um, I've seen, you know, if you've ever seen any of Alan Moore's scripts, Alan Moore's scripts are like phone books. I mean, he, he writes every detail in every panel of everything, which, you know, works for him. Everybody's happy. I, you know, can't argue with what Alan Moore comes out with. But so that my approach was not to be any more detailed than I had to, but definitely to be as detailed as I had to be. Okay, now I know we're we're over time, so I have a couple more questions, and I'll just kind of do them rat a tat tat for you. Um, one comes from a listener, but I also echo it as well. That Fantastic Four Big Town was a great concept. What was the story behind the series? Well, I'd come back to Marvel. Um, you know, Tom Brevoort had asked me to do some stuff, and and I came back. Um, I was finding the business to be very different. I mean, it was no longer do whatever you want to do. It was more, you know, <clears throat> come up with an idea, run it past your editor, listen to what he has to say, go make changes. You know, I, I was finding it less interesting at that point, which is why I eventually, you know, retired from comics. Um, but coming back, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't, I'd, I'd been there in the 70s, I'd been there in the 80s, I'd done the Malibu Ultraverse stuff in the 90s, plus whatever else I was doing, DC and, and other things. So I didn't really want to come back and just do the same kind of thing over again. If I was going to come back at this point, I wanted to try to, you know, give it some perspectives that, um, that hadn't been seen before. And, you know, I just thought, all right, well, you know, it's kind of kind of the same approach. It's like if if New York City actually had Reed Richards inventing all these fabulous things and Tony Stark inventing all these fabulous things and the Avengers having headquarters somewhere in Manhattan and all this different stuff, it would actually change the city. I mean, the conceit for a long time had been that all these guys were in New York and Peter Parker had, like, real problems the way everybody in New York has real problems. But I thought, by this time, New York would be a completely different, <laughs> you know? It would not be the New York that we're all living in still. <laughs> um, and, and so that was the genesis. It's like, okay, you know, let's, let's reimagine everything from the standpoint of what New York has become. And that, you know, not only, so that led me into, you know, a new girlfriend for Johnny Storm and, and, and uh, you know, different, what uh, a lot of the characters sort of came out differently um, from what from what the normal thing was. So it was, it was kind of, um, let's see where this goes, um, parallel to the Marvel Universe. Obviously, it's not 
can't be the real Marvel Universe, but uh, I thought it was. I thought it would be fun to reimagine New York. Well, as, as a as a fan who read it at the time, I, I do. I still really like that story because it is a nice uh, a nice concept and a nice springboard to, to tell interesting stories that you can't tell in the regular Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if if when it been continued. Um, that's what would have happened. It was always supposed to be a four-issue thing, so I, you know, did a beginning, middle, and an end, and, and got out of there. But um, it would have been fun to keep going with that because, I mean, it would have been totally a parallel universe. But a, you know, a, I mean, if you think about New York, really, with it, but it has all the technology that Tony Stark and Reed Richards can come up with. I mean, it would be, it'd be like it'd be like living a hundred years in the future, <laughs> you know. Um, as as we were talking about an hour ago, I mean it's it's um, it, it would open up all sorts of new venues. Um, but there you go. When, and now, right around the same time, you also did uh, another Hellcat series or mm-hmm. and Hellcat series. Um, I always was curious what led you to name each of the issues off after a soap opera. Um, well, she was from the soap <laughs> opera. Yeah, realm, right. That's where she came from. Um, uh, that was, I think, I think Brevort, I didn't ask for the Hellcat. I liked her, you know, obviously because I had done her in the Avengers, but it was Brevort's idea to do this miniseries. And it was nice working. Um, um, ooh, I just, I just, Norm Brayfogle. I was just about to blank on his name. Norm and I had a good time doing that. Um, and I really liked his artwork. Um, but it was only three issues. And, and I mean, that was kind of my, as I say, I was coming back to discover that the company had changed a lot since I was there last. And that was one of them. Um, it used to be entirely on the writers to know their characters and the history of their characters and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's how we operated in the 70s and 80s. And I come back and, and you know, he says, I, you know, I'd like you to do it something with the Hellcat. And... You know, I said, well, I would, but from I, I have this idea that, like, she married the son of Satan and she committed suicide. And, I mean, I don't really know any of that stuff. And that's where Brevort said, nobody works that way anymore. It's up to the editors to know all that stuff. You just have to, you just have to know enough to write your stories. So I thought, mm, I'm not sure I like that approach, but okay. Um, but anyway, I mean, so that was the approach, and he told me what I needed to know, and then I built a story out of it. And, I mean, her tagline throughout all that stuff is, I'm just a girl, even though she's beating the devil and, and Satan and all the rest of these people. But I really like the idea that, you know, she kept going, well, I'm just a girl. <laughs> and then she'd be kicking butt. I thought that was a fun a fun characterization for her. And then on that return kind of uh, engagement with Marvel, you also got to uh, do the Celestial Quest miniseries. Right, same deal. Brevort said that Mantis had really gone off the rails over the last 10, 15 years, whatever, and he wanted me to kind of, since she was my creation, he wanted me to do a a Mantis thing that would um, sort of put her back to where she was supposed to be. Um, And so that was was the genesis of that, and... and, um, that got me back into the Avengers and and um, and and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, Brevort's idea for me was to kind of take characters that I had done that might have gotten, you know, off on the wrong foot and and kind of reestablish them the way they were supposed to be. Um, but as I say, I mean, again, there was so much stuff that I didn't know, and and um, you know, I felt bad about it. 
and they kept saying, it doesn't matter, you're not supposed to know about it. But uh, I just thought, eh, it's, it's less satisfying this way. Uh, okay, so I'll, although I liked, I, although I will say, I really liked the Hellcat series, really liked the Celestial Quest series. I mean, I I made the stuff uh, fun for myself and hopefully for other people, you know. But but the you know behind the scenes, it was more gears grinding. <laughs> um, I have to ask the, the inevitable question. I don't know how I didn't ask already, but um, what do you think of the film versions of Star Lord and Mantis? Um, I'm. A big fan of all the Marvel movies. I am a big fan of Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm a big fan of Star-Lord. I am not a big fan of Mantis in this sense. The only relationship between the one on screen and the one in the comic book is that they're both female. Everything else, every other distinguishing characteristic is different. And I like the one on screen. I like the movie. I like the character. You know, mm-hmm. but it's not Mantis, and and so I'm I am, you know, never understood exactly. I mean, the Guardians of the Galaxy it was established that she was in that group, so there she was. She was going to show up, but why um, she's not the character that she's supposed to be, I do not know. Uh, I am, you know, nobody on the comic side is is except Stan, I guess is crosses over into the movie realm. Um, I think the people doing, you know, working for Kevin Feige on this thing, they're, you know, they are very respectful of where, you know, when they read the, when they read the comics and they go, oh, there's an idea I can use, they, you know, you get, you get screen credit for that. I mean, they, they are good about acknowledging their sources of, of treating people, you know, with respect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're not consulted when they're, you know, when they're writing the movies, doing the movies, they're not checking in with the people who, who created the characters in the first place or wrote the characters in the first place. They're just checking in with the books that we actually did. Um, again, I cannot, I don't, uh, none of this is meant to sound derogatory, um, I'm, you know, I'm happy with what they do. I'm happy with the way they treat us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I just was, you know, I, you know, if you're asking me, I can't say that I'm that I that I like a character as distinctive as Mantis being turned into a completely different character, even though I like that character that she turned into. Gotcha. If you follow me, I do. And you said Star Lord, you're a big fan of, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, you know. Um, the guy that I created was a complete jerk, and over the years, people took some of the really sharp edges off of him, and I liked that. And, and that's pretty much who he is in this in this series. You know, I mean, um, all of it went through James Gunn's own brain, and so everything's been sort of you know. But um, Star Lord is, is pretty much the guy that he ought to be. Mantis is pretty much not the person that she ought to be, um, and. Um, you know, I'll be interested um, in the in the upcoming Infinity War movie. Um, we get to see Nomad, and I'll be able I'll be interested to see what you know what Nomad is like. But I won't know until actually I'll probably go to the one of the perks is getting invited to the Hollywood premiere for these things. So I will probably find out about two weeks before you find out. But that's <laughs> when I'll find out. You know, as to what what people are doing. Um, but I really don't, you know, I don't have any, like, 
systemic problem with the way they're they're approaching this stuff. There's just individual bits that, um, you know, I mean, and that's that's the biggest one, Mantis. You know, what is it like being at one of these Hollywood premieres? It's pretty much well. It's pretty much what you would think. I'm a, I don't live in Hollywood. I'm not, you know, I'm, I won't say unfamiliar because I've seen movies of it and I've, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, it's weird because Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> uh, which runs in front of the Kodak Theater and, and the Chinese Theater and um, the El Capitan Theater, um, Hollywood Boulevard's a real street. I mean, people drive on Hollywood Boulevard except... About once or twice a week, they close it down, um, which must make traffic. You know, living in that neighborhood, it must be a, a terrible. You know, because you can't you can't take it. Um, but they close the street. They put up a backdrop. They lay down a red carpet, and and um, you know, I I get to I get to walk. I'm, I don't get interviewed. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm not on the Marvel simulcast or whatever it is. Um, but you know, I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard on a red carpet about to go into the Kodak Theater where they hold the um, Oscars. Um, you go in, you get free Coke and free popcorn, <laughs> and you get to sit down and, you know, and you're sitting next probably to some of the actors who are, you know, or who are in the thing, and, and you get to see a state-of-the-art screen and all that kind of stuff. The one thing that they don't do when they do that, by the way, is they don't show you the the, the secret scenes after the credits, because mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't want you going out two weeks early and telling everybody what they are, so you get a version of the movie which, which has those parts uh, not in it. Um, but um, you know, it's it's um, it's a Hollywood sort of thing, and if you're if you're not involved in the Hollywood scene, it's sort of fantasy land and weird and fun and all those things all at the same time. Um, so you know, I mean, nice to be nice to be included. Um, but not my not my daily um, <laughs> <laughs> life. I have a, actually I have a really kind of dumb question about that. So when you're at one of these premieres and the movie's over, does everyone respectfully wait for the credits to roll, or does everyone oh, get up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I discovered the first time down there, which was for the Guardians' first Guardians movie, um, that they don't show you Howard the Duck at the end. Um, <laughs> Uh, I had to had to find out later what you know what the missing scene was because I remember I did sit through the entire credits and then there was no final scene, but I think most people did. I don't really and, and I you know I've now been to half a dozen of these things because I wrote so many different books that I end up getting invited to you know Avengers and Doctor Strange and Captain America and all that. Um, and I don't you know I think people well I think people sit there because. It's it's basically the people who made the movie and the people who wrote the comics that the movies are made of, and there's probably other factors, but most of us are looking for our name on screen <laughs> at some point <laughs> or another. So, uh, uh, you know, we all sit there and um, and and look to see what comes by. For sure. And then my, my final closing question, and I, I apologize that I waited this long to ask it. Um, how did Coyote come about? Um. Well, I went out, uh, one of my good friends um, in comics in the 70s was Alan Weiss, um, who was an artist, um, didn't do much, but did nice stuff when he did do it. 
Um, and he was from Las Vegas, and I had never been um, out to the West. Um, and I ended up going to Los Angeles for a wedding, and then I went over to Vegas and, and you know, spent a night or two, I don't know, at his parents' house. Al wasn't there. But then fairly soon thereafter, within a year, I went out and he went out, and we spent like a month uh, you know, I was living in, in their guest bedroom for like a month, and Al and I were, were um, you know, running around doing stuff, and, and part of that included going out and spending time in the desert, which, of course, was brand new to me. And so just um, the time I spent wandering around in the desert um, kind of turned into Coyote. Uh, and then when they, you know, when first Eclipse and then later Marvel wanted me to do a creator-owned series, I, I immediately gravitated toward Coyote as uh, at least the first one of the ones that I wanted to do. Um, Did, so, yeah. Would you ever write Coyote again? Oh, absolutely. Well, I have written him again. I mean, the thing about um, owning characters, I don't own an infinite number, but, you know, him and Scorpio Rose and a few others. Um, when I got out of comics in, in, the, in the 10 years ago, um, I went and I wrote uh, three novels for Tor books, fantasy publishers, and it was about new characters, uh, Max August and Pam Blackwell. Uh, he was a magician, immortal magician, blah, 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 up against basically... <laughs> Uh, I mean, for shorthand, you might say the whole, the whole right-wing conspiracy, whatever. Uh, all the, you know, it, it's a little more complicated than that. But anyway, um, so I had these prose books with with fantasy elements and and so forth. And um, Max and Pam run into Coyote and Scorpio Rose in there because I can do that. They also Mantis is in there under under her nom de plume of Lorelei, because um, um, again, for people who don't know, and I'll tell this real quick, but after I left Marvel, somebody came up to me and said, does this mean we'll never see Mantis again? And I said, no, I bet I can do something. So I stuck her into the Justice League uh, under another name, Willow, and then later I stuck her into a Scorpio Rose book under another name called Lorelei. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it's clearly her. You can see that, I mean, she looks exactly the same, and, and uh her storyline continues, but I had, I had to keep changing the name for obvious legal reasons. And so, you know, the one that I own is Lorelei, and and um, so I, you know, I do use them, um, and and quite enjoyed actually. Um, Coyote's pretty much the same in the in the prose book, but I but I sort of reimagined Scorpio Rose, and and um, um, you know, so they're still part of my world. Um, uh, but that was in prose, which a lot of comics book, comics people, um, as I discovered, a lot of people who knew me from comics weren't necessarily going to follow me into books with no pictures in them. But I, you know, <laughs> I, I got a, I got a completely different audience, and they probably had no idea who Scorpio Rose was supposed to be. But as far as I'm concerned, it was all fun to do. 
Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking so much time today. And in the future, I'd love to the chance to chat with you again because I only scratched the surface of all the uh, tons of questions that came in to ask you. So uh, at some point in the future, if we can sit down again, I would really love the opportunity to do so. Sure, that'd be fine. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, thanks again. And we'll connect at some point in the future. Okay, good. Thank you.